And we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10 uh, together this morning. So Paul has been thanking God for the Thessalonians, uh, not only for their faith and love and hope, but also for their evangelistic outreach uh, into the community. And basically he's been saying that he really has no need for people to, to tell him how they're doing because their lifestyle has caused other people to give positive glowing reports about their growth in grace and their service of the Lord. So we're going to be looking at uh, the end of this uh, first chapter, and I'll read for you verse 9 and 10 as Paul continues really in giving thanks to God for these believers in the city of Thessalonica. So the Holy Spirit wrote this for our edification. It's inspired. Reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So in verse 9, what Paul is again referencing is the report that other people were giving about what God was doing in the church at Thessalonica. And that report is going to come from those in Macedonia and in Achaia and in other parts who had heard about the conversion of the Thessalonians. And their report is going to be echoed by Paul in the rest of verse 9 and 10. This is what Paul is hearing other people say about the Thessalonians. And it gives an amazing reputation that they had, which really is a good model for us and for our church as well. He begins in verse 9 by saying, that uh, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. So Paul is hearing reports from other people about how the Thessalonians received Paul when he went there to preach. Now he's already kind of referenced this, for example, in, uh, back in, in verse uh, 5. Of this same chapter, he said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so the report is echoing this, that when Paul came and preached to them, he preached in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Spirit of God was at work. They received the word in power. This Holy Spirit gave them a full conviction of its truthfulness. So that's part of the nature of their reception of the apostles. And then in chapter 2, he'll repeat this, their reception of them, when he says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the report was that when the Thessalonians heard Paul and Silas and Timothy preach the word to them, they received it as the word of God. They didn't receive it just as a word of man, but they received it as the word of God. And that bears testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. So this is a kind of reception that he's referring to back in chapter 1, verse 9. Now, from here, Paul now describes the type of conversion that people are talking about occurred in Thessalonica. So here he's going to begin by giving a three-part analysis of true gospel conversion. And this is something we can test our own lives by and also test our church by. And the three main phases of conversion are to put in in a certain way it's repentance reverence and rendezvous 
awaiting their meeting with the coming Jesus Christ. Repentance, reverence, and the rendezvous with Christ when He returns. So this is the first thing He points out in verse, verse 9. That all these other people in Macedonia and Achaia are reporting to us about how you turn to God from idols. This would be the repentance. They turn to God from idols. Now notice this is very interesting because the people that Paul is referring to here in verse 9 were idolaters. So they turn from their idolatry to God. Now, if you remember that the, the early believers that made up the church at Thessalonica are described for us in Acts 17, verse 4. And the original ones who came to faith were some Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and some of the leading women. Those are the ones who came to faith. None of those would have necessarily been associated with idolatry. The, the God-fearing Greeks were worshiping God with the Jews at the synagogue. They had already come out of idolatry. But they came to faith in the context of Judaism. The same thing with the leading women. And, of course, the, some of the Jews who came to faith. But what Paul is talking about are additional people who had come to faith and by this time may have been in the majority, but it describes them as those who turned to God from idols. So what this bears witness to is that the Thessalonians, when they came to faith, they didn't just bottle it up within, they began to share it. They began to go out and evangelize the idolaters, the pagans in the city in which they lived. And apparently a good number of them also embraced the faith. So now when Paul's writing his first letter to this church, he's primarily focusing on all of those who came from idolatry and they turned to God from their idols. So they were idol worshipers. They were the ones who would go to the idol temples and they would pray there and they would sacrifice to those idols. They would pay their alms to them. They would serve them. And when the gospel came, they turned to God away from their idols. So apparently, this church was very... God had blessed their evangelism. And oh, that God would bless our evangelism that we would have the boldness to preach the gospel to those around us and, and seek to have other idolaters in our culture turn to God from their idolatry. That's what was going on in the church at Thessalonica. And this is one of the reasons why Paul is still thanking God for them. It's interesting, the idolatry was so thick and heavy in this part of the world. If you look at the map I have up, you can see Thessalonica, you can see Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was about 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. And it was on top of Mount Olympus where all the pantheon, all the gods lived. And so this is almost within view of Thessalonica. So the paganism, the pantheon, all of these pagan gods were very much worshipped in this area. And yet, when the gospel came in power, the Spirit of God is at on the move, they turned from the folly of all of that idolatry to worship the true and living God. So this is really quite an amazing uh, thing that uh, God did, and that's why Paul is thanking God for them. Now the word turned in verse 9, I want to say a word or two about it. There are several words in Greek uh, New Testament for what we refer to as repentance or turning from sin to God. One of the words which is not used in verse 9 is metanoia. You've probably heard of that particular uh, Greek word before. It literally means a change of mind, often associated with a godly sorrow for sin. <clears throat> metanoia speaks of a true regret <clears throat> from the sin that we once loved, but now we we look down upon and despise. It's a change of mind. 
It's a change of mind that brings about an aversion now to the old lifestyle that we used to live. We don't want it anymore. We want, it, we want to turn away from it. And repentance is that idea of turning. And the metanoia emphasizes just a change of mind, particularly from our sinful past. The second word, the epistrepho, is the word that Paul actually uses in verse 9. And it has a little bit of a different emphasis. The emphasis on epistrepho is that it's looking more at the results of the turning. It's not so much the, the regret of the past. That, that's definitely there. It's involved. But the focal point is on the new life, the new relationship, the new beginning. It's the turning from idols to God. And the epistrepho word seems to have more of an emphasis on this new direction of life. A new relationship with God. A new lifestyle that's different from the old lifestyle. So what Paul is emphasizing is that you turn to God from idols. You are now living for God. So it's, it's, an, it's, it's an emphasis that stresses an entirely new lifestyle with God. So when God changes somebody... When he converts someone, like he does these people, there's a change in the total person, a complete makeover, a radical change of allegiance. It's more than just a regret from the former manner of life. There is regret. But it's a new love for Christ. So it really encases both. It's a love for the Lord. It's a desire now to live for Him, to please Him. And all of this can be seen in the new outward conduct that seems to be emphasized by the word epistrepho. Now, for example, you can compare this with God's work of converting the Ephesians. You remember in Acts chapter 19, when Paul goes into Ephesus and uh, he's preaching the gospel there, and some of the seven sons of Sceva are out trying to cast out demons. You remember that story? And they approach some person that's demon-possessed, and they try to cast out the demon. And the demon says to them, I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who in the world are you? And then the demon, still inhabiting this man's body, leaped on these seven sons of Sceva and beat the tar out of them so that they ran away naked and, and wounded. So they had no power because they were false prophets. They were false uh, teachers. They just tried to name the name of Jesus, but they didn't really know the Lord. So in contrast with that, you have Paul preaching. And when the Ephesians came uh, to faith in Christ when converted, you see a radical change. You see power in their lives. So in Acts chapter 19, <clears throat> verse 19, says, And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So you see the transformation. They turned from idols to God. And that involved a new lifestyle. They're no longer living for idols. They're no longer engaging in the occult, the worship of Satan. They've changed. They've turned. Now they're living for God. And they show that in a very public and practical way of burning all their magic books. All the things that enslaved them in their old life, they got rid of it. No more. And that shows that epistrepho, that turning to God, that new way of life that now they're manifesting. They have seen by the grace of God in the gospel the utter folly and vanity of worshiping idols. And I love Psalm 115 when you talk about a psalm that deals with the utter folly and vanity of, of idols, uh, this is a great one. 
It says their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. And they're finally seeing the utter folly of, the, of, of idolatry. I mean, they're, they're finally seeing the truth of all the pantheon, all the idols that were surrounding them, that this is absolutely nonsense. And that's the effect of God's grace changing a heart. It turns us around. As William Hendrickson said, we experience a religious revolution. We are no longer the people we used to be. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what people are saying about you Thessalonians. You've turned to God from your idols. You're different. You're changed. I wonder if people say that about us. You know, our idols are different than they were in the first century. Our shrines today where many people go and worship are the sports stadiums and the shopping malls of, of our cities. Or now on Amazon, where we can engage buying anything and everything that we want. Our idols are oftentimes money, where we're always focusing on treasures on earth, treasures on earth, it's all here, it's now. And we don't think of anything about treasures in heaven, it's all here and now. So our idols can be money, it can be being accepted by our society or by our peers. It can be success, it can be, it can be fame, popularity, sex, sports. I mean, we have all kinds of idols in our own culture. An idol is something we're devoted to more than God. An idol requires our allegiance. And we cannot live without our idols. It's uh, sad, but back in 2018, when you have the great um, financial crisis, in New York City, there were people in the, in the financial industry who committed suicide because they lost their money. In other words, they lost their idol. And if they didn't have their money, their wealth, then life was not worth living. See, that's devotion to an idol, a false god. And how sad and tragic that they would end their own life. But that's the kind of enslavement and grip that idols can have upon us. But when we hear the gospel, the gospel sets us free. Not that we become sinless or perfect. Don't misunderstand me. But there is a new life. We are transformed. We are no longer the people we used to be. The idol of choice in our culture, I would say, is the idolatry of self. It's self-idolatry, self-deification. And really it's become a cult that has pervaded really every part of our own culture today. We are gods. And we have the sovereign right to do as we so choose. That's kind of the message we're hearing from, from all over. We have the sovereign right over our bodies to end a pregnancy. We have the sovereign right over our gender that I can change it whenever I want to. Or marry someone of the same gender. I have the sovereign right to be happy and to live my life the way I want to live it without any other authority telling me otherwise. That's self-idolatry. I don't need God because I am God. And we may not say it in such a brash way, but we're thinking it and we're living it out. The world revolves around me. And that's the idea that I think has perpetrated so much evil within our own, within our own country and really within the world. Conversion turns us away from worshiping ourselves to worshiping God. And again, this is something that we, even as believers, we have to do regularly and continually is to turn from our idols to our God. 
I think John Calvin nailed it when he said that the heart of man is a perpetual factory for making idols. And we still have it. It's still making idols in our heart. And we have to look within with the guidance of Scripture and the Holy Spirit to recognize our idols and to turn from them to God. That's one of the marks of conversion. This is the first thing that marked the conversion of the Thessalonians. They turned from their idols to God. So repentance is really the first mark of conversion that should describe us regularly in our lives. We always need to be turning because idols are always trying to pull us back into their hole. So repentance is the first thing that Paul uh, observes. The second thing is their reverence. They turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turn to God to serve God. They used to serve their idols, but now they're serving God. See, there's a transformation that takes place. From, idol, from being idol-centered to being God-centered. To serve God here, actually the word for serve comes from the Greek word slave, doulos. A slave is uh, one who is owned by another. And we were owned by Satan when we worshipped the idols, but now we're owned by Christ. We've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. He owns us. So basically, we're serving as a slave, but a different kind of slave than we were when we were serving idols. That was kind of a, a sinful, wicked, vile service. But this is out of devotion and love for Christ. We are serving a living and true God. It's a service that we want to do. Nah, we don't do it perfectly. We struggle. Sometimes we still sin. Sometimes we're not as serving as we should. But because this change has occurred, we serve God. We want to serve God. We don't do it as slaves per se. We're called slaves, but we're also beloved children. We're also heirs of Christ. So we're slaves to God in that very glorified, redemptive way. A slave takes orders from only one master. And our master is the best. It's the most loving master of all. It's our Heavenly Father. We serve a living and a true God, our Father in Heaven. There's a huge contrast here between God and the idols. Some of the contrasts are idols are dead, God is living. See, all of the idols that they worshipped were made of dead wood, dead stones, or dead metal without life. No life in them at all. So it's totally dead. And yet God is living. God is self-existent. He has life within Himself. But the idols are dead. They have no life in them at all. What a contrast God has saved us from. I love the uh, analogy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 44 when he talks about just the utter folly of idolatry. He says it's like a, a guy that goes out and he cuts down a tree. And then he cuts the tree in half. And with half of that tree, he makes a fire and he cooks his meat over it. He roasts his meat and he eats it. And then he sits there and he warms himself by the fire. So that's one half of the tree. The other half of the tree pulls out his, his chisel and his knives and his axes and he, and he carves it into an idol. And then he goes and he falls down before this block of dead wood that he has cut down and made himself. And he worships it and he prays to it and he says, Deliver me for you are my God. I mean, how utter folly is that? But all idols are like that. They are dead. 
And the Spirit of God has turned us from worshiping dead idols to the living God. Idols are also false. God is true. Idols in their very nature are lies. And they're demonic lies. It's interesting what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. He says, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. In other words, all of their idolatry, all of the sacrifices that they were bringing to the idols, they were really, really worshiping demons. The demons are the ones who deceive people. The demons are the ones who blind them. The demons are the masquerading as gods, pulling people in to, to worship and serve the lust of their flesh, the lust of their eyes, boastful pride of life. It's the demons that are pulling us in, thinking that's where the key of happiness is, that's where the key of fulfillment is. But it's demonic. We're totally deceived. Idols are lies in and of themselves. They are false. You cannot trust them. Paul says to Timothy that unbelievers are ensnared by the devil, held captive by him to do his will. That's why they're worshiping all these different kinds of idols. Because they've been ensnared to worship a lie. And there is no escape apart from the grace of God. Isaiah 44 goes on to say that God has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. Want to worship an idol? God will smear over your eyes and your heart so that you'll never be able to escape it. You'll never see the light of the truth unless God comes in His power, regenerates your heart, causes His light to shine in there, takes out that old heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, and then you see the truth. You flee from the idols and you flee to God. But apart from that, people are enslaved to their false idols. Idols are many. There's one on every corner back then. Temples, idols all over the place. God is only one. Idols are visible because of the work of man's hands. But God is invisible because He is spirit. Of course, the Son of God became incarnate and He took on flesh and blood and bone to be our Redeemer. But God's nature is spirit so that He's invisible. Idols are creatures, again, made by man. God is the Creator. All these differences, all these contrasts. And finally, the Spirit of God has opened their eyes to see the folly of the idols, and they've turned through Christ to God for salvation. So this is part of the reverence that Paul has heard from all these reports that these believers at Thessalonica have made an incredible lifestyle change because God has rescued them and set them free. God's grace in Christ breaks the bonds of idol worship. He sets the prisoner free to serve God. And this is what Paul emphasizes when he wrote his letter to the Romans. When he said, But thanks be to God that through you, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. So there's this incredible new reverence that describes their conversion. There's repentance. They turn from idols to God. But there's also a new lifestyle, a new reverence, because now they live to serve the true and living God. So it's a new reverence, a new lifestyle as a result. And then there's a third element, and that is a rendezvous. Another part of conversion is the awareness that 
There's more to life than this life. That one day this world will end when Christ comes back in His glory and He raises the living and the dead and there's a judgment to come. And the Gospel involves that part of the message as well. Now, while Paul was there, he was, uh, when he was there at Thessalonica, he had taught them the basics of eschatology about Jesus coming back. So they definitely understood that. And you notice in verse 10, it says that, that Paul was hearing reports about them that they're waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So when Paul preached the Gospel, he certainly included a measure of the blessed hope that we have when Christ comes back. Remember in John 14, Jesus says, I'm I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, then I'll take you to Myself so that where I am, you might be with me forever, forever. So that was a part of the gospel hope. It's a hope that one day Christ is going to come back. And these believers understood that. So not only had they repented, not only were they living a life of reverence and service to God, but they were also waiting on the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know when that's going to be. People who are smarter than me may may think they know when it's going to be, but I don't know when it's going to be. But it doesn't matter whether it's near or far. We're to be waiting and anticipating and expecting for Him to come. Watching and waiting. That's what we're called to do. For them, I mean, it's been 2,000 years and the Lord hasn't come back. But they thought the Lord was coming soon, but we, we know that the Lord did not come soon, at least in His glory, in His second coming. And so in the same, the same way for us, we don't know when the Lord is going to come back, but part of the gospel conversion uh, change of life is that we have an expectant rendezvous with Christ. We are anticipating His return and we're waiting for His return. This is, this is an aspect of our conversion I think oftentimes gets swept under the rug. But this is a, a definitely a blessed hope. The certainty of our future victory is guaranteed. And this is an incredible encouragement because remember earlier, this church was going through persecution. They're going through affliction. And there's nothing that can encourage us more when the world is against us and we're suffering loss and we're suffering damage and we're suffering abuse from the world to know that one day it's going to end. And Christ is going to come back and we'll be glorified with Him and every tear will be washed away. Every sorrow is gone. No more curse. No more death. No more sin. And we have a glorified body and soul to be with Christ forever in heaven. What a blessed hope. Particularly for those who are going through adversity and trials and challenges like they were. Those believers who live in light of this waiting expectation of this future rendezvous meeting up with Christ will live a more blessed Christian life than those who don't have this attitude. These are the three marks of conversion for for Paul that he's heard other people say about the Thessalonians. They have repented. They're living a life of reverence and serving and living for God. But they're also waiting for Christ to come back. That has so many positive, sanctifying blessings when we maintain that, that perspective. The word for wait here in verse 10 does not imply passivity. That we're just sitting around waiting, doing nothing because previously in verse 9, he said they're serving the living and true God. So you're actively working, serving God while you're waiting. So waiting does not imply you're just passive, hanging out. You know, why polish? 
brass on a sinking ship, that idea that we're just going to kind of just do our holy huddle and wait for Jesus to come back. No, we're to be serving God. We're to be evangelizing. We're, we're to be living for Christ each and every day. So it does not imply passivity. Waiting and working or serving go together. The waiting word also implies that we are ready for the return of the King. We're ready. If you're waiting, you're looking for His return, but you're ready for His return. Well, how do we become ready for the return of the King? Well, it's as we continually are confessing sins as the Spirit of God reveals them in our life. need to be doing that every day. As we're striving to grow in grace and seeking to, to please the Lord and live for Christ, that's how we are ready and waiting for the Lord to come back with a ready attitude. Notice it goes on to say, this report goes on to say, they're waiting for His Son from heaven. That's where He's going to come down from. Whom He raised from the dead. And this is a guarantee of our resurrection because Jesus was raised from the dead. Obviously, Paul had preached to them that Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified. God laid our sins upon Him and made Him suffer, and He punished Him for all of our sins. And then He died triumphant, having accomplished our salvation, and then on the third day He was raised from the dead. So the very body that died is a body that was raised, is the same body that's going to come back. It's the physical, risen Lord Jesus Christ. This Son who came down and perfectly performed the will of the Father died and returned to the Father. And now He was going to come again. And He's going to come in just the way that He went up. As we read earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. How did they watch Him go into heaven? Well, they watched Him go into heaven literally and physically and visually. They watched Him go into heaven. And He's going to come back in exactly the same way. Literally, physically, and visually, He will return. And then he goes on to say, Paul reports about them that they're waiting for God's Son from heaven who is raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So He's going to rescue us from wrath. Uh, the wrath in view here is not a future seven-year tribulation period. That's a different idea. That's tribulation. It's not the wrath of God. That's the wrath of man. But here is the wrath of God to come. Paul has emphasized this in other places where he says for the Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 5.9, much more than having been justified by His blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So this is the eschatological day of judgment to come when God will pour out His wrath upon unbelievers. And what Paul is noting in verse 10 is they're waiting on Jesus to return who will rescue them from the wrath to come. It's interesting, rescue us from is literally in the Greek, rescue us out of the wrath to come. Which implies we were in it, and then we're pulled out of it. You say, well, how can that be? Well, you have to understand Paul's theology. In Ephesians 2, 2 verse 3, he says that we by nature were children of wrath. So we were kind of in the wrath of God in our unregenerate state. And yet Christ through His redemption has pulled us out. He rescues us out of 
the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. We were in the wrath of God in our old nature, but He has saved us out of that. He rescues us from the wrath to come. Uh, When God's wrath falls on that final day, there will be no negotiation, no bartering, no pleading with God, no second chances to repent. When the day of God's wrath comes, it is over. No more opportunities to believe in Christ. No more opportunities to flee and repent and turn from our idols to a living God. It's over at that point. When God's wrath falls, for sinners who refuse to turn from their sin now and serve God, their judgment will be sure. And the longer they delay their judgment will increase. Paul writes in Romans 2.5 that because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's the wrath of God here. That's the wrath to come. When you read the book of Revelation, John Every time he mentions this word wrath, it's always the wrath of God. It's not a future tribulation that's brought by men. That's not what we're being rescued from. We're being rescued from the judgment of a holy and a righteous God, a judgment that we deserve. But Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves, has rescued us from the wrath to come. It's interesting, the word rescue is in the present tense. He doesn't say He will rescue us when the wrath of God comes. He rescues us now, meaning that any time a sinner turns to Jesus Christ, at that point he is rescued from the wrath of God. Because our sins are forgiven. There's, As Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are rescued now from that coming wrath of God. We've been delivered out of God's wrath now as we put our faith in Jesus Christ because all of our sins have been forgiven. We are rescued now. And it happens at the point of conversion. And our rescue now means that when that day comes, when Christ comes back in glory to judge the living and the dead, that judgment that lake of fire that sinners will be thrown into will not come near us. We've been rescued from God's wrath. We will not be in that judgment. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Christ comes back, He will separate the sheep and the goats. The goats will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. So this rescue is something because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who can rescue you now from the coming of God's wrath and judgment. He and He alone can rescue. He can save you. He can deliver you. But you must call upon Him. You must turn from your idols to a living and true God, you must repent and have evidence of your, re- your reverence for God, living for Him, if you really want to be assured of your own salvation. Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. The serving is just merely the evidence that we've been born again, our faith is alive. But you must come because only Jesus can rescue us from the wrath to come. That judgment is certain. That day has already been determined by God. And it's a day that will come. Maybe sooner than we think. But it's a day that is certain. And are we ready for that? Do we have the reputation as a church that we are those who have repented of our sin? We're living in reverence by serving God. And we're a church. We're individuals who we are waiting for the coming of the Son of God. Is that our reputation or not? 
It should be. These are the marks of conversion. If they don't describe us, then we need to plead God's mercy to give us more grace that it might describe us. This was the reputation of the Thessalonians. By God's grace, it can be our reputation as well that we live that kind of a life. You know, the, the gospel therefore includes a word about the wrath of God to come. And it's sad that I think in <clears throat> modern day evangelicalism, <clears throat> we so water down the gospel that we present Jesus just as a friend. Are you depressed? He can make you happy again. Are you lonely? He can be your friend. If you have troubles in your life, he's the problem fixer. And that kind of a Jesus won't save you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we're sinners. By nature, we're children of wrath. And I need forgiveness. That is my need. And Jesus is the only one who can forgive me of my sins. That is the gospel. And when I put my faith in that Jesus, then he promises to forgive. Now again, he's all that other stuff too for the believer. He's the best friend we'll ever have. He can heal us of our diseases if he so chooses. He can make our life full of meaning and purpose. But all of that is the fruit of, of the faith that saves, which is our need of escaping the wrath of God and having our sins forgiven. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to initiate ever gospel conversation with the words of John the Baptist when he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Don't have to start every conversation that way. But there is a message about why we're believing in Jesus. Because we need to be saved. Not saved from my loneliness, saved from my depression, but saved from my sin and its consequences, the wrath of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, even in talking to a Roman official, to Felix, said, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. So even with this high-ranking political figure, Paul brought up the subject of the judgment to come. See, true faith responds to that because true faith knows I deserve hell. I deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus can save me. If I call upon him, if I turn to him, Jesus can save me from what I deserve. And that's the faith that saves. Well, unfortunately... Satan wants to deny that hell exists. He wants to convince people that it's just a made-up fable to scare people. I don't know if you've heard about those Satan clubs and schools for kids found in at least seven states now. So in public schools, ages 5 to 12, kids in, in school, you can be a part of a Satan club. And the Satan Club has a song that says, um, by the way, there is no hell. Trying to influence all the little kids. There's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be frightened of. God ain't going to punish anybody. And that's a lie of Satan. And Satan very much wants to uh, convince people that the Bible is not true. Well, the Thessalonians in this passage become an incredible model for conversion for all of us, for us as individuals and also for our church. They were spreading the gospel. They were living out <clears throat> the gospel in their lives. They were Christians who were not the same people that they used to be. They had been transformed. They had been changed by the grace of God. And if we want to be good witnesses for Christ today, then we need to be living out the gospel well. We need to live out what conversion really means in this passage. And I can summarize it again in three ways. We need to be looking in 
even as believers, we need to be looking in with the light and grace of the Word of God and the Spirit of God to see our sins, our idols that we still want to clutch around us today and turn from them, cast them from us, and turn to God. We need to be looking in and be repenting of the sin that we find inside of us. The second part of true conversion is we need to be looking up. We need to be looking at God. We need to be serving the living and true God. We need to be looking up to know that God has saved us and His commands require of us to live a certain way. And that is the reverence, to live no longer reverencing the idols, but we reverence God, we serve God. So we need to be looking up to Him, looking in the Word for guidance. And then thirdly and finally, looking ahead to the return of Jesus Christ, that great day when we rendezvous with our Savior again, who's been raised from the dead, who'll come back and fetch us to Himself, so that where He is, there we will be with Him forever. The greatest event that lies ahead in your future is not your birthday. It's not Christmas. It's not getting a raise. It's meeting Jesus face to face. That's the greatest event of our future. And may we be waiting for that and watching and anticipating His return. Let these three character traits be found in us and increasing so that when our Master returns, we might hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. So may God give us the grace to live out our conversion so that we have a reputation like the Thessalonians for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this uh, wonderful description of what only Your grace can do. Lord, we can't change ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We really can't improve ourselves. By nature, we're children of wrath who deserve the judgment of God. But Lord, You have sent Your only begotten Son, Jesus, the sinless One, who bore our sins and suffered in our place, that all of the punishment that we deserve in hell, He absorbed in His body and soul, that whoever turns from their idols and believes in Jesus Christ can be saved from their sin and adopted into the family of God and given a new beginning, a new life, a new direction where we're serving God not ourselves. We're living for God, not for idols. And that also with that, we're waiting and anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this blessed hope. What a joy. What an incredible comfort that we can have to know that our Savior one day will come back and fetch every one of His children. So Lord, fill us with these three marks of conversion not only as individuals, but as a church, so that your name, your glory, might be uplifted. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.